checking out the dress this morning, dress, you know, the way you're dressed to come in. You know, if you dressed up to come to church this morning, and that means not most of us do that, but if you did, and you put clean clothes on, you know, your special clothes, or maybe a tie or a suit jacket or whatever, Bill, whatever dress up means, uh, you'd probably be a little bit more careful with any of the work you were doing around the house. You know what I mean? If you're dressed to go to church, then you're a little bit more careful. You might not take out the trash or whatever because you're trying to keep those Sunday clothes, those special clothes clean, so you look nice and clean when you get to church. Now, imagine, too, if you're a bride and it's your wedding day, and you get up in the morning and you put on, you know, this custom wedding gown, this white gown. It's made for one event, one whatever, one moment in your life. You know, you'll never wear it again. One moment, special moment, special day in your life. You put on your special gown. You know, that gal would not go out and sweep the floor, take out the trash. She probably wouldn't pet Fido or Tippy or Spot because she's got her special dress on for the special time. She's not going to do anything to to soil that dress. It's got to be just right for the special day. Or can you imagine, Joe, a guy who's getting married, puts on his tuxedo, and he goes out to change the oil or check the oil on his car. You know, it wouldn't happen. Or if he knew what's good for him, it wouldn't happen because he's got that special tuxedo on for that special day, that very special occasion in his life. So he protects the tuxedo because it's been reserved for this special service. And this morning we're talking about God, and God is special. And God is special in that we would say He is holy. God is holy, but I find the use of the term holy may be off-putting a little bit. So let me talk about this for just a second. Holy, when I was a kid, holy kind of had these connotations in my mind. It meant a scratchy wool jacket on Sunday morning going to church. Or holy meant, for some reason, I don't know why, but it meant old ladies in dresses with um, furniture you didn't want to sit on. Holy meant something that I really wasn't interested in, in other words. Or maybe when I got a little older, holy meant that I wasn't going to have the kind of fun I wanted to have. So holy was kind of this negative thing. I knew God was holy and somehow that was all good, but but my view of holy on the, on the plane that I lived was that holy was not something that I was interested in. Somehow it meant less in my life, not more. When we say God is holy, the reason I started with this thought about it's special, holy does mean, if we start using other words to describe what does holy mean, special would be a good word. Just like a, a, a woman's dress for her wedding day, it's got this special function. It's a special dress. It's reserved for a special time. Special is a good word for holy. It's not common. It's not every day. It's not ordinary. It's set aside for something very unique or something very special. That's the kind of thing we're talking about with holy. Holy generally means to be set apart. If you say one phrase or one definition, that's probably as good as you get. Holy means to be set apart. That, that includes a couple different ways, which we'll look at in just a second. But it doesn't have biblically or theologically, it has no downside. So as we're talking about holiness this morning related to God or the implications for your life and mine, remember going in, holiness has no downside. There's no downside to it. It's not a negative. To be holy is not a negative. I still, in my own mind, battle years, you know, of growing up where a biblical term or a theological concept may still carry baggage for me 
because my mind's not where it should be. I still see it in a skewed way. And I realize as I did this study on God's holiness, that was, that was the truth related to God's holiness. Part of it was I saw it as a negative, but that's not true. That's not the concept, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, in Hebrew, kadosh is the term that we translate holy. In Greek, it's hagios. Uh, if you read that you're a saint in the New Testament, the term is hagios. You're a holy one. It's the same thought. It means that you're set apart. And thinking about God specifically, God's holy in two different ways. One we can emulate, one we can't. The first one that we cannot emulate, God is holy. That means He's set apart because He's absolutely unique. God's absolutely unique. That is, because He's God, because He's always existed and always will, because He created everything and and everyone else, there's no one else and there's nothing else like God. So God is holy, absolutely holy, because He's absolutely unique. No one else is like Him. No one else can be like Him. He's absolutely holy. He's the Creator. Everything else is the creation from His hand, from His words, No one else, nothing else is like God. He's unique and He's holy in that sense. Besides being unique though, because He's creator and God, He's also unique or special or set apart morally. Think about this for just a second. When God created man and the earth in Genesis, if sin had never entered the world, God would have been unique because of who He was and because He was Creator. But there wouldn't have been a distinction between God's creation and Him morally, right? Because in Genesis 1 it says everything God made was good. Everything was what it was designed to be. Everything was what it should be. There was no sin in the world then. Sin only came in from Adam and Eve's decision, and of course all of us since sin also. But originally it's not as if the creation was deficient. You remember... In the Greek world, there was a thought that something that had a physical body, something that was uh, of the world, was inherently evil, and you aspired to the pure spiritual. That was goodness, but that goes against the whole concept of God's creation. Originally, the creation was holy because it was what God intended it to be. It was morally what it should have been, and Adam and Eve were morally what they should have been. But then sin came in, and Adam and Eve became what they weren't designed to be. And they weren't holy anymore because originally, remember, God created them to be in fellowship with Him. He created them male and female. We talked about last week. They were created with the thought uh, in mind of being in fellowship with each other as well as being in fellowship with God. But then sin came in and they were no longer set apart for God's purpose, for fellowship with Him. They weren't holy anymore. God is morally holy. He's apart from all sin. Anything that's morally deficient, he's set aside from that. He's not part of that. Not part of that at all. So God is holy in a couple different ways. He's holy because he's unique. He's the only creator. No one else is like him. He's set apart in that. He's also holy morally because he has no moral culpability. Let me read a couple verses for you. Related to his uniqueness as creator, Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working in wonders? When the question's asked, there's no answer needed because the thought is, God, no one's like you among the gods. No matter how many idols or false gods we create or come up with, none of them are like 
the real and true God, the creator of all that exists. Or no one's like God in His majestic holiness, in His absolute moral perfection. No one's like God in praises or in the wonders He has worked. No one's like God. Or Isaiah 40, 25, Isaiah 40 is a well-known passage, and part of that says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. In other words, come up with any name you want, thumb through your list, come up with anyone or anything you want. No one's my equal, because I'm God. I'm unique, I created all, everything has sprung from my hand. I'm holy, because I'm God. And then related to this moral perfection, Leviticus 11.45 says, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy. Why? Well, because I'm holy. To be in fellowship with God, he says, because I'm holy, you've got to be holy. We're called to God in holiness because that's what he is. Or Psalm 99 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Why? Because holy is he. He is holy. Or if you go to kind of the end of time or the visions in heaven with John in Revelation 4 verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Basically, this means they see everything. They know the way things really are. Day and night, they don't cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. These, these creatures that have perfect vision, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, if you will, in heaven, when they look at God, they keep saying the same thing, Holy, holy, holy. He's unique. He's unlike anything and everyone else. God is holy and specially set apart because He's absolutely unique as God and Creator and He's absolute in His moral perfection. Before we go on, just kind of putting aside a negative again, think of this too. For you and I to be holy, like God is holy, we don't lose something because think of God. Do you know of any creature, any person in the universe that uh, experiences any more joy than God does? See, God has more joy than anyone else in the universe. Joy is inherently part of His persona. Remember the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, these things? God has that in spades. God's perfectly holy, and yet He has perfect joy. In other words, He doesn't need to do anything morally deficient to have joy. The the perfect one morally is the one who experiences the most joy. Or the one who's perfect in His unique quality as well as His his moral quality, he's the one who has the most peace. Uh, God has more pleasure than you and I will ever have. He does things, he says in Scripture, for his pleasure, and he's perfect in his motivation, in what he says and how he carries it out. He's perfect in all that, and he experiences the most pleasure also. So in saying all of this, when we say God holy, there's no downside here. God being holy means he, he experiences the most joy, the most peace, the most pleasure, etc., And for you and I to emulate holiness, there's no loss for us because there's no loss for God in being holy. So He's unique. No one else like Him. He's also morally perfect. Along with this holiness, I need to throw in a couple other things. God is both perfect and He's just and righteous. These kind of tie to this thought of holiness. I need to get them in this week, so I've covered them. They're important. God is perfect. And He's also righteous. We might say He's just. Or or in today's language, we might say He's fair. But think about this for a minute. You know, uh, 
people who know something about diamonds will say of a diamond it's perfect, that, that it's been cut just right so the facets are perfect, it displays light just the way it's supposed to, all these things. Well, God's kind of like that. He's absolutely perfect. He's flawless. So no matter how closely you scrutinize God, there's no deficiency to find. He's flawless. There's no deficiency in God whatsoever. Or we could say God's complete. He is everything God should be. He's everything God should be. He's blameless. That means He's nothing that God shouldn't be. He's perfect. God's perfect in any way you look at Him, no matter how closely or how distant or what aspect of His nature, character, word, works. He's perfect in everything He is and everything He does. There's a great verse in Deuteronomy 32, 4, where He says, The rock, and this isn't a wrestling figure, this is God, the rock, His work is perfect, all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. He's all those things. There's nothing lacking in God. Psalm 18.30 says, As for God, His way is perfect, the word of the Lord is flawless. The things He does, the places He goes, as it were, is perfect. And the words he speaks are flawless. There's no downside, no deficiency in them whatsoever. Or Romans 12, too. When Paul's gone through this litany of the benefits Christians have in Christ, he then commends them in chapter 12, based on all these blessings, to grow up. And he says in Romans 12, too, "...be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, or so that you'll know and understand..." what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul says the more closely you see reality, the more fully your mind, your thinking is changed so that it reflects truth, the more you'll see that God's will isn't just good, it's not just palatable, that acceptable, it's perfect. It couldn't be any better. It couldn't be any different. When you and I struggle in our minds against God's will, so to speak, It's because we don't see things as they are. It's because our mind is unrenewed. When I do a study on holiness and I come in with baggage about holiness is somehow a downside, that's because my mind's not where it should be. I've got to see things more clearly. I've got to see things in a different light. So God's perfect. He's nothing He shouldn't be. He's everything He should be. He's also just and righteous. Dikaios is the Greek. We get just... uh, justice, just, righteous, righteousness, they all come from the same root. This simply means God is right and He does right in everything He does. He's right 100% of the time. Matter of fact, apart from God, we would have no concept of justice or righteousness because He is these perfectly. He always acts in ways that are appropriate based on the way things really are. His justice and righteousness are perfect. God is absolutely fair. Uh, God is oftentimes more than fair, but He's never less than fair. In your life and mine, sometimes we want to look around and say, God, you're not being fair. God, this is unfair. I had a daughter one time who said to me words I'll never forget. She said, Dad, you're ripping me off. And you know, sometimes in your life and mine, when things aren't going the way we want, You know, we shake our little fist at heaven and we say, God, you're not being fair. 
God, you're ripping me off. You know, we don't get the promotion. We're not making the money. We're not as good looking as we should be or whatever. Whatever, however you frame that. One of our first thoughts is, God, you're not fair. You know the trouble with that thought? It's not possible. God can't rip you off. He can't be unfair to you. God can never be less than fair because he's bound by his own character. God never rips you off. God is always at least fair to you and I, never less, often more, which is a good thing, but never less than fair. He can't in any way do what's not right. He cannot be in any way unjust because he is within himself righteousness and justice. When you and I say something like, that's not fair, even if you're an atheist and you say, that's not right, your ability to think or to believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong reflects God's nature as just and righteous. You have no concept of right and wrong or justice and injustice apart from God. It's because God is just, God is righteous, that all of humanity has a sense, however warped it gets, that some things are right and some things are wrong. We have inherently built in, by the image of God we share, we have a sense that some things are right and some are wrong. If you talk to a serial killer, they'll still tell you that some things are wrong. Their sense of justice and righteousness is warped, it's deficient, but they still believe some things are right and some things are wrong. And that reflects the fact that we're created in God's image, who is the standard of righteousness and justice. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That is, the foundation of God's interaction in the earth is right and it's just. He doesn't do anything apart from those qualities. Or Isaiah 5, 16 says, The Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. The holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. It's all, in a sense, it's all he can display because it's him. He can't operate against himself. Zephaniah 3, 5 is a great verse related to this. It says, The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses justice. Every day, every new day, he does not fail. Every day. If God's a an apothecary, that's the wrong... If he's a pharmacist, he's dispensing righteousness. He's dispensing justice day after day. That's what he has to give because it's what he is. God is holy. He's totally set apart. He's unique. He's righteous and he's just. He's everything he should be. He's nothing that he shouldn't be. And he is the standard for all justice, all righteousness, all holiness. We don't have a concept of these things apart from God and his character. Now, what does this mean for us? God's holy. What does this mean for us? You know, the first thing it means for us is that we've got a problem. Remember that if if God being holy means he's apart from all that's sinful, that means he's apart from you and I. That means we're apart from him. God being holy means we have a problem because we're not holy. We're not born holy. By what we think, by what we say, by how we act, etc., 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 we're unholy. So by His nature, God is set apart from us because we're morally deficient and He's morally perfect. He's not associated with us. There's a chasm. It's deep and it's wide and we can't cross over. 
Matter of fact, you know, one pig in the barnyard might say to another pig, you're looking pretty good today. But you know, it'd still be one muddy, sloppy pig telling another sloppy, muddy pig that he looks okay. You know, of how much value is that? Not much. Related to our problem, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, you remember the wedding day, the bride's dressed up, you know, in that clean white gown. Well, Isaiah says when you and I dress up, we put on our best, we put on our righteous deeds. That's we're putting on our best. We're looking as good as we can. We're showing up to the wedding as, as primed and primped and pressed as we can be. And we show up at the door and God says, you're dressed in filthy rags. You know, no matter how high or low you see yourself or anyone else on some kind of moral gauge, we're all infinitely removed from God's holiness. The best we can bring to God is filthiness and rags. That's the best we've got to offer God. His holiness is perfect. We have no holiness compared to God. Paul says this in Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. Can you imagine this? I love the not even one. See, if Paul just says there's none righteous, you and I might look around and we'd say, well, it's kind of a general concept, you know, but I might be the exception. Or I might meet the exception. Someone else today says, no, not even one. There's not even the thought that there's an exception here. And then in Romans 3.23, all have sin, all inclusive, not some, not most, not some more than others, not some less than others, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our problem is that we're not holy. We're sinful and God's holy. So there's absolutely no communication between these two. So that's the problem. God's holiness means we've got a problem. Now, I love the fact that, you remember, God can't be less than fair. But if He wants, He can be more than fair. So if God was just fair, righteousness and justice would condemn all of us to eternal separation from a holy God. His holiness would mean He can't be with us. We're sinful. He's not. He's got to be apart by His very nature. That would be the problem. We would all be condemned to be separated from God forever. But of course, going beyond fairness, he didn't violate his justice or his righteousness, but going beyond fairness or justice or righteousness in love, he's perfectly provided for our utter sinfulness through a perfect atonement, through the perfect life and then offering of his son Jesus on the cross for our sins. You can read about this in Hebrews if you want. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the blameless one who had no sin himself. And so therefore he could die, the sinless one. His death would be redemptive for sinful ones like us. If he was just another man, he would bring his own sinfulness to the plate. He would die and that would be it. We would have no benefit. Only a sinless one could be an offering for sin, sinners like you and I. So God did no injustice and he was never less than righteous. He was fully just and fully right and fully loving when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine. Now remember, whether you're thinking in your own mind or you're talking to someone else, the best you and I have to bring to God's holiness is filthy rags. You cannot get around that. 
So when you're thinking in your own mind or you're communicating the gospel to others, the good news is that we're filthy pigs, that God's caused to be reborn by His doing, if you will, into sheep, or that we're the filthy, sinful ones that God has done something about to fully provide for that. God's done no injustice. He's provided salvation that we accept. We gain the benefit. We did none of the work. We couldn't do any of the work. We bring filthy rags to the equation God says won't do. If we're going to be saved, it's going to have to be through another venue. It can't have anything to do with us. So God provides a perfect provision for your sinful condition and mine through Christ's perfection offered on the cross, then raised from the dead. Remember, the resurrection is important because it means that sin was atoned for. Sin was covered. So now we've got statements like this from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made Him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We bring sin to the equation. God provides the righteousness in Christ. This is mind-boggling too because remember, if God cannot tolerate any unrighteousness, it means the, the righteousness He provides for you and I has to be perfect. Can't have any flaws in it. The justice he, he gives us has to be perfect. If there's any deficiency, it's unacceptable to a holy God. So when you and I entrust ourselves into the care of Jesus Christ, we get a perfect righteousness because it's His. God couldn't accept anything less. So God made Him, Christ who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that's the crucifixion, and then post-crucifixion, and post-resurrection, Jesus turns around and says, to all who will accept me, John 1, who will believe in my name even, he says. He gives those his perfect righteousness. You don't earn it. We don't live up to it. But he gives it to us. It's ours in Christ, perfect righteousness, perfect redemption. Or 1 Corinthians 1.30 Uh, By His doing, you see the Father and the Son in these equations, by His doing the Father's, you are in Christ Jesus the Son. And Christ has become to us, we haven't provided this for ourselves, Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The sanctification is holiness, hagios, it's the same word. Christ has become those things for us. We don't provide them. So our problem with the holy God is provided for by, for by a holy God through His Son, Jesus. Then we get perfect righteousness. We bring this, the rags, we get this perfect clothing of righteousness. We bring the sin, Jesus gives us His righteousness instead. It's perfect, it couldn't be anything less than that. The second thing, there's many things we could say, but the second thing I want to say this morning is God must judge evil and He must reward righteousness or good. God must judge evil and he must reward righteousness. Because God is absolutely just, he must punish evil. He cannot do otherwise. He cannot not judge evil. He cannot not praise what is right. Have you heard people say something like this? I don't believe that a loving God would judge people. God's love, 1 John says, God is love. And this is true. And so therefore, because God is love, He won't judge people. The problem with that is they're overlooking that God is holy. 
He's never less than just and righteous. So he can't, based on love, simply overlook sin. He can't do it. He would, uh, the universe would cease to exist because God would cease to be God. God has to punish evil. He cannot not punish what's deficient, sin. And He cannot not praise what's worthy or right or good. You know, when you read the Psalms, you're praising God. Why? Because He's worthy. He's holy. And when we see something that's what it's supposed to be, it draws out our praise. God praises what's good. His nature, in a sense, if you will, requires it. If you look at many of the passages about Christ's return, they talk about Him bringing His rewards with Him. He's praising what's good, but He's judging what's deficient. He has to. Listen to this in Isaiah 40, 27. Thinking back on the the thought that uh, if you think God's being unjust in your life or He's unjust in judging others, listen to what is said in Isaiah 40, 27 and 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? In other words, they're saying, hey God, you're not taking care of me the way you should. You're not providing for me the way you should. Don't you see what's going on? And God says, don't you know, haven't you heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. In other words, guys, the problem has nothing to do with my not knowing what's going on. I know everything that's going on. You just don't understand what I'm allowing or providing for. My understanding to you is inscrutable. You don't get it, but that's okay. In Genesis 18, when Abraham talks to God, and if you remember the story, God has come down to talk to Abraham about him getting a son. And when he's there, he tells him that he's going to go down and look at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it's the way he's heard about them, and of course God knows everything, that he's going to destroy them. Well, Abraham's got a problem with this because his nephew Lot and his family, they're down there. So Abraham's making this plea to God, and the plea is based on the fact that Abraham knows God is just, and God cannot do injustice. So Abraham says, Genesis 18, 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Abraham got it, that God must treat the righteous and the wicked differently. That he was being unjust or unrighteous if he treated them the same. For Abraham, he's thinking Lot's down there. Lot's not like the rest of the people in that city. So Lord... You cannot destroy Lot in the same judgment with the wicked because you can't treat the righteous and the wicked the same. It would be unjust. And of course, he's right. And God doesn't. And he didn't. Lot and his family come out, of course, before the destruction occurred. Abraham got it. God treats, because he must, the righteous and the wicked differently. He must judge the wicked, the Scripture says. He must praise the righteous, the Scripture says. And last along this line, Acts 17. Paul was speaking, this is Mars Hill again in Acts 17, and Paul said this, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, that is, they should change their mind, change the way they live. Why? 
Because God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Paul said the reason you should change the way you think and the way you live is because judgment's coming. God has appointed a day in which He's going to judge the world and He'll judge it through Jesus Christ. So he says you ought to take note of that. You ought to change your life because judgment's coming. And in the judgment, God will punish the wicked and He'll praise the righteous. By the way, when I say this, I'm not, in, I'm not meaning at all the righteous. Those who have trusted Christ, you understand the righteousness isn't what we bring. When we say we're all wicked, left to ourselves, we're all wicked and deficient and sinful. So when we say the righteous and the unrighteous, we're just saying those who have accepted Christ's provision and those who don't, those who reject it. By the way, the cross, the crucifixion, is the ultimate testament or reminder that God must judge. Just think of it this way. If God's perfect righteousness required His Son's death so that people like you and I could be saved, if He was willing to judge Jesus to save those who would accept Jesus, how could He not judge those who reject that provision? Are you with me? If I spend a million dollars to bail you out of jail, see if I can get this right, if I pay a million dollars and you reject my my bail but break out of jail anyway and think you'll be legally free, you're kidding yourself. Your bail is costly. And if I've provided it for you, and let's say I'm the judge or the governor or whatever, and you reject it and you break out on your own and think that'll do the same thing, you're just wrong. Your freedom is expensive. And if you reject the legitimate payment, what can you expect except the judgment? That's all that's left. God must judge, and He must judge righteously, and He will. And He set a day in which He'll do it, in which Jesus Christ will bring about that judgment. Third in this, out of four points here that I want to close with, the third is this. God said in that Isaiah passage, He's inscrutable. You know, we can't figure Him out. Uh, He causes and allows things in your life and mine and in this world that we just don't get. One day, when you and I see Christ as He is, we'll get it. As long as we're in these bodies on this earth, we're not going to get it. Our minds will never be fully redeemed or transformed in this earth. We'll always have this sinfulness tied to our body as long as we're living life on this earth. But one day, John says in 1 John 3, 2, he says... We know that when He appears, when Christ appears, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. We'll see Christ as He is and we'll get it. When we have our new bodies, when we're fully redeemed, our minds are fully renewed, we're the people in Christ God means us to be, we'll see God, we'll see His holiness and we'll get it. And I don't mean that we'll understand all there is to know of God, that's impossible. He's infinite and we're not but we'll understand His holiness in a way that we may never get on earth. How valuable that is or how appropriate His justice, His righteousness, His holiness are. We'll see things then in a way we don't see them now. We'll comprehend them in a way we don't comprehend now. And the last is this. We're called to be holy. God's holy. And for us to be in fellowship with Him means we've got to be holy as well. Of course, Jesus says as much. In Matthew 5, 48, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mentioned this earlier. For you and I to be holy, there's no loss for us. 
For us to be holy does mean we don't do lots of things. It means we don't entertain lots of thoughts. It means maybe we don't go lots of places. In that sense, we might say it costs us something to be holy. But think of it this way. To be holy means that we become everything we should be. To become more holy means we lose more and more the things that aren't part of the true self that God's recreated us to be. Does that make sense? For you and I to grow in holiness means a gain for us, not a loss. Whatever it costs us to avoid things, actions, attitudes, thoughts, places, activities, whatever it costs us, we gain something that we couldn't have had otherwise. So just as God, who's perfect in holiness, has more joy and more peace and more pleasure than anyone else, the more you and I become holy, the more of those same things we gain. You won't lose pleasure by becoming more holy. You'll gain it. You won't lose joy by becoming more holy in your moral choices. You'll gain more joy. You'll gain more peace. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great phrase about sin He said, sin requires an ever-increasing, yes, investment for an ever-diminishing return. Does that make sense? Uh, Addicts, if you take drugs, you know, if you get on certain kinds of pain meds from your doctor, you got to be careful because you build a tolerance to them. Right, Stan? So if I take an oxy-something for my painful back, Uh, I take those when my back's painful, but I don't take them later uh, because I'll build up a tolerance and then it requires more of the same thing to get the same effect. And whatever you and I try and substitute in our life for God or for holiness in this sense, it does this thing. It requires an ever-increasing commitment, whatever it is, for an ever-diminishing return. So whatever it is that you and I try and fill ourselves up with in an unholy way, it can be anything. It can be, you can be a workaholic, it could be work, it could be sex, it could be drugs. I mean, you name it, it can be anything. But this is the scenario you find yourself in. You work harder and harder to get less and less. But when you choose holiness, when you go God's direction, you just get more and more. Of the good stuff, you get more and more of what's satisfying because you become more and more of what you're designed to be and you experience more and more of God who is life, who is joy, who is peace. You get more and more of all the good stuff, less and less of all the bad stuff. So for you and I to grow in holiness, it's all gain. You know, there's a caricature in our culture that to be holy means to go to church, It means to be self-righteous. It means to look down your nose at others. We're not talking about any of that. And guys, you know, frankly, if any of us are honest, I don't care how long you live on this earth, the closer you get to God and you look at yourself, the more you realize there's an infinite distance between God and you. And I don't care how clean your life looks. I don't care how saintly, how godly you are. Infinity lies between your level of holiness and God's. And so one pig telling another pig you're dirty this does not go very far. And you know, in Jesus' day, Jesus looks at Pharisees who look great on the outside. They look religious. And they do all the right things. They go to all the right places. They meet all the right people. But what does He say inside? They're, they're dead. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about God and becoming like Him and letting go of things that we're not designed for, meant for. And as we grow in holiness, we get more and more of the one who is life 
and justice and righteousness and perfection. So there's no downside to you and I becoming more and more of what we should be, becoming less and less of what we shouldn't be. We are to be holy. You know, in the end, uh, I didn't read the end of 1 John 3, 2, but it says, uh, 3, 3 says, everyone who has this hope, this hope of seeing Christ as He is, purifies himself as He is pure. You know, the snow fell last night. Did you guys look outside this morning? That snow is pure snow right now, isn't it? Uh, it's just snow. came out of the sky. It's fresh. You know, it's on the trees. You go out, scoop it up in your mouth or whatever. But, you know, give it a few days and what happens? A little dusty. Birds get into it. You know, whatever. It becomes less and less of what it is. For you and I to be holy and to be pure, we're just, we're just chucking dirt. We're just getting rid of things that aren't part of who we really are anyway, just like that snow. The snow is pure. That's what we're aiming for. In the end, this future hope that we'll see Him as He is, it's supposed to purify us because we're thinking of that wedding day. And you know, all of us, if you're a Christian, you've been called to a wedding. You know that? It's, it's a wedding feast, and we see it in various passages in the Scripture. But just imagine this. You're like the bride, and you're thinking about that wedding day. And you know, you've got to be dressed right to go to this ceremony. And God has provided the whitest of whites, if you will, for you ladies, those dresses, and for guys, those, the whitest of whites for the tuxedos. He's provided all that for us at His expense. We're invited to the feast. He's given us just the perfect clothing to show up in. And so He said, with that in mind, keep those clothes clean. Don't get down in the mud. Don't change the oil in those clothes. Put the coveralls on, Joe. But you know... You're dressed right. You're called to this wedding. This is who you are. This is where you're going. That should impact the way you think about life because I've been given these clean clothes, as it were, Christ's righteousness. God says, now, hey, take care of that. Now, you know, last, you know none of us keeps those clothes clean. Uh, We're the little boys, if you will. We're playing in the mud. What do you mean my clothes are dirty, Mom? What do you mean you just washed my clothes? You know, there's the mud puddle and here here am I. Uh, All of us fail. Nobody does this. And when we fail, and we do every day, then we, we do it. We take care of that the way God has provided. We take those sins to God, and we tell it like it is. We confess our sins, and what's He? He's faithful, and He's righteous to forgive those sins. When you go and you tell God, I've sinned, you're telling the truth. When He forgives you, He's being righteous because Christ has covered those sins. We have a momentary lapse. And you know what? Your clothing is clean again. And let me say this. Many of us labor under the guilt of past sins. You've got to get rid of that. When you confess your sins to God, He forgives them. And they're gone. And you know, you look at those Old Testament passages, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins have been removed. Where does the east meet the west? It never does. They're opposite directions. Or, you know, it's as if God takes our sins and puts them in the deepest sea. They're they're beyond your ability to get at. So we're called to be holy, but the truth is none of us are. We're not. Every day we blow it. We're less than holy. So when we do, we take that to God. And He is absolutely righteous. He's doing right. He's doing justly when He forgives your sin because it's been covered by Christ's sacrifice. So if God has forgiven it, don't you carry it around. 
Don't you labor under the weight of what God has already forgiven you of. As far as God's concerned, you're holy again. You're spotless again. You're as clean as that snow that fell last night again. And when you get soiled again, and you will, you go back to God and you do the same thing. And you start over. And there's no guilt left. You have no atoning to do. It's over, it's gone, it's covered. No matter how hard you work to be better, no matter how bad you feel about that sin, what you're offering to God is the rags that He simply cannot accept. So you come to God, you say, Lord, I blew it again. This is what I did. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And He does because He has to. And He wants to because Christ has covered those sins with His blood. Well, let's pray. Sorry, I've run a little long. Father, you're nothing less than perfect. You're everything you should be, nothing that you shouldn't be. And Lord, I pray that when we think about you in this kind of perfection, that it's all positive and no negative. Lord, I pray that we understand that for us to be more like you is all gain and no loss. And Lord, in the muddied culture around us, in which to be like you is castigated and mocked, I pray that you will help us to see that your life We don't need to play around at at death, Lord. You have life and joy and peace. And to be with you and to know you is more of all that's good and desirable, Lord. Help us, Lord, make decisions to become more like you. Help us to choose to be holy and set apart from you, Lord. Thanks for providing a perfect righteousness for us in Christ at your expense, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.